The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We're going to look, turn to God's Word. If you have a Bible, uh, we turn to Matthew chapter 7. Uh, we are um, going to be looking at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount here, the last half of, or the last bit of it in chapter 7. And um, I will read for us. And then the verses will also be on the screen as well if you uh, don't have a Bible, so that's no problem. And, um, and then we will look at this together. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 uh, to 28. Did I put 28? Or let's see, can we go back a slide there? Oh, giving away the. Is there an introduction slide? I said Matthew's 13 to 23. It should be 28. We're not, or actually 8 verse 1. So we're all out of whack this morning, guys. I'm sorry. Matthew chapter 7. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide that leads, uh, and easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing by inwardly, but are inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. The grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. And healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word, these are a collection of odd sayings and things that seem a bit confusing. And so we ask that you would help us to put them together and understand what you're doing and teach us how to live out the wisdom that Christ has given us. And so we look to him to be our wisdom, and we ask for your spirit to help us grow in wisdom. So in his name we pray, amen. I don't know about most of you, but I kind of wish, uh, there was moments in my life where I wish that there was like a how-to manual for a number of things that I don't know what to do, like being married or being a parent or being a pastor <laughs> or being a Christian in general. There's a, I wish there was a how-to manual for all these things that just don't 
makes sense, right? There's like all these things that we face all the time and it's kind of like, uh, nobody told me it was going to be this hard. I didn't know about this, <laughs> right? If you've been, I don't know what, what areas you guys think about, but I think about like marriage. It's like two days into being married, you're kind of like, uh, all this premarital counseling I got, <laughs> it, it prepared me for like day one. What do I do with day three? I think that that's, um, that's a bit of how we feel then at the end of this uh, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been doing an incredible amount in the sermon, teaching us and guiding us and showing us what it means to be his people. And now, as he's kind of leading us onto the path of being his disciples and kind of saying, okay, enough teaching, now we're going to go do this. He's kind of giving us a bit of some guidance for, okay, what do you do with all these things that you don't know what to do with in life? Like the wisdom of what it means to engage all these I don't knows, right? Um, that the, the desire to figure out what do I do with all these things I don't know what to do with, that's, that's what the Bible calls wisdom, right? A lot of, a lot of my non-Christian friends will sometimes poke at the Bible and they'll say, um, look, the Bible's doesn't ha- it's filled with all these rules and if, you know, rules for this or that. And it's like, well, actually, there's, there's, not a, there's a lot of rules, but there's not a lot of rules for the rest of life. The Bible's really not intended to be a rule book um, for telling you what to do with every situation. It's actually, uh, there are some rules, right? Don't steal. <laughs> that's a rule. <laughs> Uh, but it does tell you, like, how do you live a wise life? And the reason the Bible holds out wisdom for taking those principles and applying is because God wants us to live a beautiful life in Christ. He wants us to live a life that looks beautiful in the way we apply God's word. And so Jesus already in this sermon has been giving us lots of wisdom and guidance for how to live our life. And this is describing what the kingdom looks like in living with him. And that's the wisdom that he's talking about here at the end of the sermon. So we still have the slide. I want to just kind of review where we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, just to make sure we're all keeping track, because I know that you remember every sermon that, because um, I don't. Um, so, so, so the first half of, so the Sermon on the Mount, it starts out, the first, ha- uh, first half of chapter five, disciples thrive in happiness by following Jesus, right? He, he holds out these beatitudes. What does it mean to be a, a thriving person who grows in happiness? Well, we follow Jesus, right? That's the point. The second half of verse five, or the, the most of chapter five, disciples want to be like their father. If you remember all these things about, you know, don't lust and, um, you know, don't bear false witness and all these things, the point of those statements isn't to give you like another list of uh, 10 commandments, but it's actually to say, no, the Father's heart wants you to, to be like him. Like Christians, people who follow Jesus, they want to be like the Father. And so he gives some case study examples. And so disciples want to be like their Father. And then Jesus goes to the heart of the matter and he says, we don't just pray and fast and give to be religious. We actually, we do those things because we want the Father's rewards, right? Disciples want their Father's rewards. And as Jesus looks at our lives, he then goes on to talk about, okay, yeah, there's going to be lots of fearful, anxious things that happen in your life. And so we fight fear focused on the Father, right? That's what, that, that's what gives us the prayer and then trust the, the Jesus, that the Father is caring for you. And then he starts chapter seven. That's what Pastor Jeff preached for us last week. Disciples engage relationships with the Father's wisdom, right? It, it, it seems like Jesus is really kind of like covering like the whole gamut here. And then you're kind of like at the end of this, you're like, okay, well, what about all those other things that I don't quite know what to do with? Jesus kind of covers all of them and says, okay, live out the wisdom Live out my wisdom of the kingdom. So disciples live out the kingdom, live out kingdom wisdom. The wisdom of being focused on these, he's going to hold out for us these kind of four areas. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at these because Jesus wants disciples to live out 
the kingdom wisdom, right? So what does that mean, kingdom wisdom? He's going to give us these four kind of lanes of what kingdom wisdom looks like um, so that we can know, okay, here's what we do as we kind of move on in our Christian life with Jesus, four things to be attentive to. So four lanes for living out the, king, the king's wisdom of the kingdom. And so we're going to pick up in verse 13 and 14, kingdom wisdom for obedience, right? This is just lifelong, just general. Jesus is covering kind of some, some big categories here. Like, what does it mean just to be obedient? Like, well, from now until the moment that you die, right? So Jesus says in verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, who enter it, enter it by it, sorry, are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now, the, the traditional way that people read this is they'll read this and be like, okay, so um, don't be like people who go to, um, you know, uh, bad places or go see bad movies or watch bad TV, you know, or don't have any morals in their lives or whatever. Like, that's the traditional way that you get this kind of applied is, look, uh, don't make bad life decisions and uh, be religious and trust Jesus. Like that's kind of, that's, I mean, you know what I mean? Like that's kind of like the traditional way to read this. But remember, what's the context of what Jesus, Jesus is getting up at basically at a church summer camp on a mountain and he's addressing all these people and he's going after their hearts. The whole Sermon on the Mount, he's been, he's been putting his finger right under the surface of our hearts to get at the core issue. And so the issue of what Jesus is saying is, don't be loose morals versus being moral. He's going after the, the real d- dynamic of don't be religious and go to hell. <laughs> He's saying, look, trust and follow after me, which is a hard path. Like the, 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 the people that Jesus is going after are people who live religious lives without Jesus. Like that's easy to do, right? There's, through the whole gospel story, Jesus is going after the Pharisees who he, he commends. Look, you guys tithe like you should, right? You give 10% like everything you should, right? You know, star for the day. <laughs> he goes and says, you guys attend church without ever missing it. <laughs> star for the day. You know, you guys are faithful to your wives and you, you discipline your children. And you give them good education and you pay your taxes. Good star. But your heart is so far from me. Right? He is going after, he's saying this to religious people to say, religious people can live lives that are good and they can go to hell. That's easy. That, that's, he's saying the, the wide path is doing church and doing Christianity on your own terms without Jesus or you can follow Jesus and constantly have yourself and your desires and your wants checked and corrected but that's the way of life. That's the way into life and to grow and flourish. Remember, the whole Sermon on the Mount starts with Jesus' call to repentance. He says, repent. And the way of life, the, way, the gate that's wide is to say, don't worry, Jesus got this covered. You never need to repent. Your life doesn't need to change. Nothing about you needs to be corrected. The way that's narrow, that Jesus says, is a way that constantly is saying no to self and growing and depending on him, you can be successfully religious without Jesus, but you can't have Jesus halfway. Right? The call of what Jesus is saying here is a full, committed, devoted life to Jesus for obedience to him on his terms or none at all. There's not a halfway part. 
There's an urgency here that we get at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that, frankly, feel, I feel a little uncomfortable. I mean, it makes me kind of, it, it checks me. Like, oh, I, all right, Jesus, do I have the urgency, right? He says, enter by the narrow gate. Like, his call is urgent. I'm seeing all, he's saying to this crowd, hey, could you imagine me getting up here? All you religious people here at King's Cross Church, I'm seeing what's going on, and you are either on the path that's going to be hard and narrow and leads to life, or you're on the path that's easy. His designs are the path that's hard for us to follow because our heart wants to go all over the place, right? Not our path, right? Our path would be easy, self-excusing, self-congratulating. Like, don't you know, Jesus, I gave whatever. Jesus, I went to church on a snowy day when there were six inches of snow. There is actually special rewards in heaven for people who show up to church on the, seven, on the sixth day, on a day of six-inch snow. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Right, it's a path. The life uh, of a disciple is constantly having the disappointment of not getting what you want so that you get and you desire what God wants. Right, I don't know. Um, I'm going to attempt a sports illustration, and you guys know my handicaps, so you guys are going to going to be gracious and, and helpful here, right? But you guys know the story of the 76ers, the Philadelphia 76ers. So I'm going to I'm stepping out on a limb here, right? They started out in the 1980s. They were a mediocre team with Sam Hinkie as their general manager, and the worst thing to be in the NBA is a mediocre team, right? A mediocre team might get to the playoffs because they're kind of okay, but they generally don't, and so they always miss out on the playoffs, but they're not bad enough so that they get the first draft picks, right? So the worst teams in the NBA get the first draft picks, they get the first seed, and the best teams get last. And so to be mediocre is, uh, is kind of like the worst place to be, right? Because you're not bad enough to get first draft, but you're not good enough to get in the playoffs, right? So it's like this catch-22. So Sam Hinkie, their general manager back in the 80s, he set up the process, as it's been called. And the process was to basically say, anybody who could possibly play basketball well gets kicked off the team. <laughs> and so the 76ers intentionally, for like a decade or more, were getting rid of anybody who could play basketball well so that they could intentionally become the worst team in the league and then get first draft picks. And so they, after years and years, and that what happened ultimately is that it, it went on for so long that Sam Hinkie got kicked off general manager. But his plan, the process, went so well that they eventually drafted two or three guys <coughs> who were some of the best guys in the league, one of them being uh, Joel Embiid. I don't know if you guys follow the NBA, but Joel Embiid first, actually he got drafted, he got injured, and so he, he got delayed a year, and so they were able to get another top draft pick that following year, and so they came out, and they were guns blazing awesome. <laughs> Like, and so Jim, uh, Joel Embiid actually is known as, he's, he just calls himself the process. Like he's, but the point I bring this up is to say the whole process of what was happening was a continual disappointment of desires for, ult for ultimately to grow and get better, right? That's the Christian life. That's what obedience is, right? I don't know what you guys experience of like the Christian life, but it's constantly saying, you know what, no, I'm going I'm going to say no to myself. I'm going to say no to my desires for my money, my time. And we're going to, I'm going to follow God's plan. I'm going to follow what God holds out. It's hard. It's not easy. But the process of obedience, it requires the wisdom of Jesus to submit to it because he is making us into people who like him, who are like him. Wisdom for obedience is often getting rid of substitutes for Jesus. 
That's the hard part of, because we always have these substitutes for Jesus. Whether it's, you know, uh, I kind of am about Jesus, but I go to, so to keep with what Jesus is talking about, I go to church to kind of like alleviate my conscience about things. I'll give to charities to alleviate my conscience. Or maybe it's Netflix to check out. Maybe it's substances. Maybe it's um, a number of things. Yelling, you know, saying, well, I don't need to change because Jesus has given me grace. There's a lot of things that we substitute for Jesus himself. And the path that's hard is constantly saying no to ourselves and no to our substitute Jesus and going to him specifically. Right, the process that Jesus holds out for us is a kingdom wisdom for obedience. Right? And we do this often. Uh, the one I think about the most is that I see this with the, just the nature of repentance. Right? Repentance uh, is saying I was wrong and walking back the path to join God's ways. And we often shortchange the effects of repentance because we'll say, okay, I said I was wrong. Now can't you just treat me the way I want to be treated? But the reality is that often with the most extreme sins, it took years for us to get there, and the repentance process is walking that back. It takes years. It takes time. Right? We can't just say, look, I'm sorry. I did whatever. Adultery, stealing, whatever. There's years of walking back those things. That's why for our friends who are in recovery, it's years of, of faithfulness to a process to overcome addiction or addiction to ourselves. It, it's a process, and we shortchange the process, the change, the obedience by saying, well, it's just grace. And often I wonder if we're jumping the track from the narrow path of the path of repentance to the wide path that's easy. So just to ask this question, and we'll move on. What do you do when life in Jesus gets hard? What do you do? Where do you go? Do you run to relationships? Do you run to Netflix? Do you run to substances? Right? What makes your Christian life easier than substituting for Jesus? And the way that we address those things, remember the center point of the Sermon on the Mount? What is it? The Lord's Prayer. We go to the Father, who's eager to help us, right? So the wisdom isn't kind of like, oh, you horrible people, you really screwed it up. No, the, Jesus expects us to struggle with obedience. But he wants us to go to the Father, get his wisdom. Okay, Father, I need your kingdom, not mine. Remember, that's the opening prayer of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, have hallowed be your name. Your kingdom, not my kingdom come. Your will be done, not my will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Right, the, the path of obedience, the narrow path, is looking and depending to him in prayer. So Jesus not only leaves us there of saying, okay, here's a whole life of obedience. We often need guides, right? We can't just do this on our own. We're supposed to do this with our people in the Christian church. In the church. And so he goes from obedience to talking about teachers. And so that's why we're going to pick up here in verse 15, kingdom wisdom for discernment. The, this whole collection of, of verses is actually a bit of like, it can feel kind of like, a hodgepodge of like, okay, we've got paths and now we've got fruits and trees and then we've got false teachers and then we've got houses on rocks. So how do we put this all together? I think we're going to be holding with this theme of disciples live out kingdom wisdom. So we're going to pick up in verse 15, kingdom wisdom for discernment. We're going to read the first verses 15 to 20 and we'll talk about those and then we'll go on to the others. Beware of false prophets 
who come to you in sheep's clothing by inwardly, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. We will recognize them by their fruits. The grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles. No, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, and nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. All right, this is where we wolves in sheep's clothing. Well, that's a pretty common phrase, at least in the Christian church. I think generally in kind of popular culture. So what's going on here? What's, what's Jesus saying? Well, the, the main point is that like false teachers are not easy to identify sometimes. Right? That's kind of like an obvious, like you look at this, all right, so we need teachers and guides in our lives uh, and our Christian discipleship with Jesus. But the bad ones are hard to find sometimes. They're hard to identify because he says, he says like, right, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. And we think, well, what is that? Like a wolf with like a a doily on top or something like that, you know, like, well, the intention, <coughs> excuse me, guys, is that it's hard to see what they are, right? That's why he goes on to use trees as an image, right? You can't tell all a tree's bad or good for months or years sometimes, right? It takes a while to see, like, you know, there's like an off year for a tree, but it takes time to see, like, oh, no, this tree's, like, diseased. It, take, it takes time. But again, remember, he's saying this to to a, re- a religious, Jewishly upright group of people who would have, on the out- outside, they would have looked like they were like totally in line and living a good life and being blessed by God. And Jesus says, no, no, it might look like sheep's clothing on the outside, like a good tree on the outside, but it takes time to see the bad stuff on the inside. I was, I was actually drawn to Second uh, Timothy and thinking through this, you see this where Paul talks about, it's funny, I think, there's just a throwing this out there, random free thought, that I think that there's a, a lot of the apostles' teaching where they are actually expositing the Sermon on the Mount. And so I think, we'll read through this and you can agree or disagree, but 2 Timothy 3, listen to what Paul says. But understand this, in the last days, so that's a phrase to describe anything from the life of Jesus to the return of Jesus. The last days is everything in between. There will come times of different difficulty. Remember what Jesus says? Disciples will be persecuted. Sounds kind of familiar. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, uh, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having... Okay, let's stop there. Like, at first glance, like, that that sounds kind of like, well, it seems like that'd be pretty obvious who those people are. What's going on? And then what does Paul say? Having the appearance of godliness, that is not what I would associate with that previous list, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Okay, so there is a way for people to fill out that list and be members of a church. <laughs> Can you, like that is not easy. But, but you see what I'm talking about? Like that list, I would see, if I saw somebody who was lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unpleasant, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure and lovers of God, I wouldn't say godliness. But there's a way for people to do that. And he goes on to say, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, just as Jannes and Jambres opposed Moses, 
So that, remember those uh, guys who had the, the wizard's duel with Moses? So, the, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get there very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as, what, um, as was with, that two men, with those two men. So, so he's saying, look, they're going to look God like there's going to be all this gross stuff going on in their hearts, unrepentant gross stuff going on, but they're going to appear godly in some sort of commendable way, and it's just going to take time to see. Right? That's, I mean, if you see like, well, the images that Jesus is talking about is wolves in sheep's clothing, like eventually a wolf's going to eat another sheep, <laughs> or eventually a tree's going to have bad fruit. I think that's what Paul's talking about, right? It's, it takes time, but they don't win. Right? Remember the, the whole point of the book of Proverbs is God's world, and it, and it runs according to God's rules. <laughs> That's what's going to happen here with wisdom, right? Eventually, people are found out for who they are and what they're doing. So then let's pick up in verse 21. If you guys will bear with me, we're kind of working through this to kind of understand what Paul, Jesus is talking about. Everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, everyone who, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day... Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Right, so here we have another section where Jesus basically takes what he said before and he gives it an illustration, right? One of the things you do when you write a sermon is you explain the text and give an illustration. <laughs> so Jesus has explained what he's saying, and now he's giving an illustration, which is a bit shocking. It's not exactly what we were expecting. Because here he goes, all, all the religious versus gospel people, he takes it to the extreme, and he says, okay, the last day, where there's going to be judgment, there's going to be people who stand up and say, Jesus, we did great things in your name, which is incredible to think. Like, this is one of the reasons why I think you know, prophecies and casting out demons and all that stuff continue from now until when Jesus returns because he says there's people who are going to prophesy and say, here's what God says. God gave me a word for you. God's going to cast out demons. He's going to heal people from, through people. But they're not going to know Jesus. And this is real hard, right? This is like, okay, Jesus, what do we, what do, we do with this? I think that the focus here is that they were people who were focused on deeds rather than words at the end of the day. Because actually, the funny thing is, Paul does in 1 Timothy 3. I'll just read this, and we can go back to Matthew. He continues in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, Iconia, and Lystra, which persecutions I endure, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Again, the Sermon on the Mount. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now pay attention here. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you were acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So you see Jesus, or Paul, he says, all these people have all these works and deeds that have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. And he says, okay, so here's the positive example. Follow my, follow my life and conduct. Follow the wisdom that God's worked in my life. 
that is based on what? He, again, he draws, he draws a line to the word. So you follow in his pattern. And then what does Jesus do? He says, don't believe these people. They're going to have they're going to have bad fruit eventually. They're going to have mis- they're going to appear to be godly, but they're going to have lives that are treacherous. They're going to be focused on big deeds, not knowing the Lord. And how can you tell? Verse twenty-four: Anyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. Right. So the the wisdom that he wants for us in discernment is based on his word. Right. <laughs> Just like Paul was driving. Look, know God's word. They're going to. Be, God's word is what makes you wise. And that's what grounds your life. Not these miraculous and great deeds, which are true and good and helpful. Jesus, he says, go to the book. <laughs> go to the Bible. He's drawing our attention to look at him. Right? This is a bit of like, um, if you guys know anything about how to take apart bombs, uh, this is, I, yeah, John does. So the way you take up, the way you become like a bomb detector or somebody who takes apart bombs or... Um, kind of like in war situations, you don't get to know intimately all the bad ways that bombs are put together. Like I, I had a friend of mine who was a bomb, well, I don't know what they call it, what's the phrase for it? A bomb disposal or whatever? Detonator, like right? somebody who takes care of the activator. There we go. Right, we're, gonna, we're writing the sermon together, guys. Um, yeah, there we go, diffuser. So the person who does that, they don't get to know all the bad ways you put together a bomb because there's like all there's like a thousand ways to put together a bomb. What they do is they focus on how do you, what's the right way to put together a bomb, and then when they go into a situation where they don't understand what's going on, they say, okay, well this is what it should look like, and here's all the kind of crazy stuff that's going on, and they're able to kind of work from there. I think that's what Jesus is driving at us for, for us. Do you know him and know his word and what he's like, and then when you get around people who are not something's off. It's not trying to dive into what's all wrong with them. It's trying to dive into who is Jesus and what's good about him, right? So the emphasis is not on trying to uncover and like, ooh, yeah, figure out who's bad and what's going on and what's going on in their lives. The, the point is to say, okay, do we know who Jesus is and what he's like, <laughs> right? That's, I think, what Jesus drives at um, the word, right? So how do we apply this? Like we look for, we look at the word and we get to know who God is and what he's revealed himself to be like. So obviously all the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus just showed out. And we say, okay, are the patterns that we see in the Bible present in the teachers and guides of our lives? Are there emphases? Are there focuses, right? So just as to throw this out there, if somebody is obsessive about the end times, probably not somebody to pay attention to very much, right? Just saying the Bible talks about the end times, but it doesn't focus a lot on the end times, right? There's one book at the end of the Bible <laughs> that talks about it. There's a couple other points between now and then. If somebody focuses heavily on you should do this Christian practice, you know, you should train your kids this way or do this with your families or your marriage should look exactly like this, that's not a pattern that's in the Bible, right? Those are things that are talked about in the Bible, sure, but they're not emphases that are strong. You want to keep the main thing the main thing. That's why we talk about being gospel-centered, right? We're going to talk about a lot of things as a church, <clears throat> but we're going to keep Jesus as being the main thing for our lives and our life together and what we're giving other people. We are not offering people a miniature subscription to, you know, Old Navy or whatever, right? We are offering people life and hope in Jesus. And so the way we get to know what that looks like is we get to know the book. 
Do we look at the book? Do we know it? Does it begin to read us? Do we get to live in its discernment of us before we apply it to others? Now, just one thing, and then we'll move on, is that this is not intended to make us be overly introspective. Because the way we can take this is say, am I going to be one of those people who gets to Jesus at the last day? That's not the point of this. The point, right, you notice, you notice that in verse 22? I mean, you read this, and it's one of those things where you're kind of like, man, that, that's pretty gutsy. On the last day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? It's a bit of like a self-congratulatory sense of that, isn't there? Like, yeah, we did it in your name, under your banner, Jesus. <coughs> but we did them. <laughs> Didn't you see what we did? At the last day, anybody who loves Jesus, they'll come as beggars. Jesus will say, why should I let you into heaven? Like, nothing I did, Jesus. Only you. So you see the difference there? Hearts, maybe we're convicted there. But we're not going to be self-deceived on that. All right. You guys ready to go on? Verse 24. Sorry, we're kind of drawing this out a little bit. It's because of my cold. Kingdom wisdom for your soul. So uh, Jesus picturing this as life of obedience. You've got guides along the way, and ultimately you're building something with your soul, with your life. It's kingdom wisdom for your soul. So verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So I don't know if any of you have ever been involved with building a house. I haven't, but I have friends who are carpenters and in construction. It takes time. It takes a plan. It takes devotion, right? And the thing about these two houses that Jesus paints for us is that by all appearances on the outside, they are exactly the same. Maybe the one on the sand might be a little bit better, you might could say. But they're both, like, construction-wise, they're all exactly, exactly the same. The difference, again, that Jesus has been going at is inner righteousness, the whole Sermon on the Mount. And the difference between these two houses is the basement foundation. I don't know, if I, at my last job... Um, there was a friend of mine at, the, at work who bought a new house, and they renovated it, and it was really nice. And, we, and I don't know if you guys ever do this, where you like, the friend has a housewarming party, and then you go over, and they like show you the whole house. That seems like a security concern to me. But, <laughs> but you know, it's like, hi, here's my house. If you ever wanted to break in, here's the entry point. We got a bad, we got a bad window in the back, you know, <laughs> all that. But the funny thing is that anybody who's ever done a housewarming party where they show you your house, they don't show you the basement. <laughs> They don't show you the, the gross stuff in the basement that's in boxes or the dirt foundation. They don't say, open the door and say, here's the foundation. It's a little shaky, isn't it, right? But Jesus is laying out this picture of saying, your heart, your soul, you can look right on the outside, but on the soul level for your soul, you've built it on something else. Jesus is saying a whole Sermon on the Mount, religious righteousness that looks good versus gospel righteousness. That does what? It builds on the king by his word. That's what the spirit does in us, right? We build on Jesus. His spirit gives us his word, and it begins to put together our souls on the foundation of who Jesus is. So the question that Jesus is asking us, are you building on yourself, 
are you building on Jesus? And the illustration that he gives is storms. This, uh, I was actually in what I was reading. Ever since the time of Augustine, people have read the storms of life as the trials we go through. I'm not sure why that's a historical fact, but there it is. We talk about the storms of life, the trials we're going through. They oft, often you see conversions to Christ when trials come and things realize, people realize, oh, my foundation are all sand. They're all nothing. So it's not bad. Trials of life are generally going to lead people to realize just self-evaluation. But what Jesus has in mind here is the final day. He has in view the last day of judgment. He's picking up on a biblical picture. We talked about this when we looked through the book of Exodus. But all through the Old Testament, the waters of judgment are a, are a picture of God's unrelenting justice laid out on his people. Right? We actually just read that from the story of Noah. Right? Corey read for us from, from Genesis. Right? The waters of judgment are this picture from the Old Testament. And, of course, we're, we know from the Bible that God's not going to judge the world by another flood, but it's still an image of his unrelenting judgment upon us. And what's the, what is the only thing that causes you and I and anybody else to stand at the final judgment of God when he metaphorically unleashes it? It's Jesus, right? It's either yourself and you'll get washed away and it'll be an eternal fall forever, or it's Jesus and you stand and you enter into the kingdom of heaven, right? You, you sense the urgency of what Jesus is using here? Like, this is incredible. This is how he's ending his sermon. Right? I, I, this is not the way I would end sermons personally. <laughs> Maybe it's because I'm not as good a preacher as Jesus. But he ends on this final call. What are you going to be landing on in the last day? Is it me or yourself? So, a couple questions. Are you submitting to the authority of Jesus' word in every aspect of your life? Are you inviting it? That doesn't mean you do it perfectly, but are you inviting the authority of Jesus' word in every avenue and crevice of your life? Secondly, are you inviting others into your life to evaluate your foundation? Honestly, the guy who built on the sand, all he needed was a friend to come along by and say, bro, your building plan is not working out. Are you inviting other people to evaluate your foundation. That's what we have missional communities for, guys. <laughs> it's not to say, are you a Christian or not, but just to say, hey, you know what? I see this pattern, what's going on? Like, is, th is there wisdom here? Like, it seems like there's things that you're missing, or I don't know if you're paying attention to this. That's why we have missional communities, so that we can invite each other into the junk of our lives, so we can find Jesus and hope together, right? I mean, I don't know if that's a, a statement for what missional communities are, but we're inviting each other and remember, the freedom of grace is that we can do that without fear. We can look and say, okay, Jesus, I'm a total wreck. Yeah, my foundations are wrong. Help me. That's actually a sign of building a foundation on Jesus. Right? The wisdom that we need is how to do that sensitively, boldly, and carefully with each other. And let's pick up on the last part of this sermon, and then we'll be, we'll be done Kingdom wisdom for more souls. So have <laughs> you following this? Kingdom wisdom for our own souls, the last ending of the sermon. But I think there's actually something for us to pick up here. Kingdom wisdom for more souls, verse 28. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he taught, he was teaching them as one who had authority. No kidding, because he just said, if you do my words, you'll live. If you don't, you'll die. Right? At teaching them as one had authority and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, Great crowds followed him. 
Is it, Jesus is one of the few people in history that could punch you in the face and you'd be happy about it. That's kind of how the Sermon on the Mount lands on me, where you're just kind of like, man, it's a gut punch. But Jesus, thank you. <laughs> like this crowd are drawn. I mean, you realize what he's just said, right? These last few statements have been, um, some of you are hypocrites and will be judged and go eternally to hell. Let's go. <laughs> right? And Jesus, people follow him. Like he's, there's a gracious, peculiar allure to Jesus where he draws you in because you know that you're safe with him even though you're exposed with him. People want to come into him. But we've missed something in verse 14. I just want to draw your attention back to. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. That word few really bothers me. Because here's Jesus in the midst of this crowd calling people to repentance and life in him. And yet he's saying to them, few of you will find it. He's in a crowd, yet few find it. I, there was a song that captures this, the, my heart here on this. By, by, I don't know if you know Shane and Shane, but they wrote a song like a decade ago. Right? May the few be many, because they're, they're meditating on this very verse. Jesus, in the midst of the crowd, I mean, I have it written right here. May the few be many, Lord, few. There's few that will find you. But God, in Manchester and in our neighborhoods, would that be many? Right? I want it to be many. I know that you're saying it's few and the whole spectrum of human history. But God, for us and our life together, amidst the crowds of our neighborhood, would it be many? That few, just, just add a few words and flip them. Let's make it many in Manchester. Lord, please. And the way Jesus does that, we don't just plead for that without his heart for it, actually. Because you see, um, verse one of chapter eight, when he came down from the mountain, right? Jesus Jesus is leaving the mountain because he has another mountain to go to, right? Actually, the geography of the book of Matthew is you have the Sermon on the Mount at the front end and you have the Mount of Calvary at the back end. And chapter 13 is actually the geographical low point. Of the book. It's in the structure of the book. Here's who the king is, and the king walks down this path amidst the crowds that will deceive him, that will, or will be deceptive about him, will crucify him, and they will eventually follow him up to another mountain, right? And he will be executed out of this crowd and go lit, stand up, and what will he stand on? <laughs> He'll stand on his throne on the cross where he will die on behalf of these people, on behalf of us, you know, the, us who stand around him at the Sermon on the Mount here at the beginning of the book and think, what great words, what a great wise king. What authority. You know what authority he has? He will cancel out the record of sin because he's God in flesh. And he will do it for you without your permission so that you could enter into the free life of the kingdom. <laughs> I get to the end of this and I think, the Sermon on the Mount, I'm so sad that we're done. Because here we have Jesus who will one day say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of me. Because of you. Because he wants this life, this wisdom, this joy, this flourishing to be real in our lives, to be rooted in the hard storms and trials of our days. And he wants it to be rooted in such a way that he guarantees it on his own terms. And so he walks up the hill of Calvary and is forsaken by his father 
so that we can be invited into and enjoy and live out the kingdom wisdom. May we pray that not only do we enjoy and live in this wisdom, but that the few of Manchester become many who join us in living out this kingdom wisdom. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these hard words, as we look at the end of the sermon by our king, the greatest sermon ever preached, Father, would you give us your spirit that we would live out this kingdom wisdom, not because we deserve it or have earned it, but because our king has secured it for us. And so, Father, we come to you with confidence, knowing that your smile is upon us, that we would live out the wisdom for our lives, for obedience, for discernment, for our own souls and the souls of many, God. For Jesus' fame, in his name, in our neighborhoods, and in Manchester. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.